0: Years.
1: <laughs> so, right after you eat these meals, you have energy. But the energy lasts a very short period of time. And you're hungry much sooner. And then you have to eat again. And then you have to eat again. And then you have to eat again. It is a lot cheaper to go eat fast food. I mean, it, it Definitely, you can buy a hamburger for cheaper than you can buy an apple. That's very sad because you're telling me I have to pay more in order to eat healthier. And I can pay less in order to get fat and to make you rich or for something that I might die over. It's unbelievable.
2: The poorest people in our country are the fattest people. We've done something completely wrong here.
3: Uh, but I actually love this idea because I, I hate figuring out tips, right? I mean, call me crazy, but after I've had three glasses of wine, I don't like to do a math problem in my head, right?
2: Tens, baby. Tens. Gimme them tens, gimme them hundos, gimme them thousands. Liters instead of
1: gallons, and instead of miles, there's kilos. It's confusing to me how kilometers are shorter than miles but meters are bigger than feet
2: it seems like the metric system makes a lot more sense than our system yeah ours is dumb
1: why should you be a voice for public transit just watch what happens when public transportation enters the picture your community comes to life and you're able to go to work get to school do some errands see the doctor catch a show watch the game That's because wherever public transportation goes, our community grows. Creating jobs all over America. Helping local businesses flourish. Generating investments in our communities. Voices for public transit are everywhere. Speaking up on key issues. Raising our concerns on the state and federal level. And making sure our elected officials understand that we need to invest
3: more in public transportation. We've been traveling far Without a home But not without a
2: Hello there. Welcome back to 500years.org podcast. This is Jeff Till and today is September 2nd, 2016. It's been about 2 months since the last episode and I have to apologize for that. I had a bunch of actual bench work, meaning work that I have to do myself, come in uh, four papers and half a website. It was a ugly month where I violated just about every one of my personal freedom uh, principles. I had to write papers and take tons and tons of phone calls with clients. I had to write papers on the military industrial complex and the aerospace and defense industry, sort of one of the same thing, being an advocate for that. And then also one on taxes for corporations, which again, I had to advocate for being good and better at paying taxes. And then even for the website, I had to promote The effectiveness of state government. So none of these topics were particularly in my wheelhouse, but if I don't take the jobs, I don't get the other jobs and I don't get paid. So a little bit of hypocrisy there. Also in that two month time, I did one of those cram vacations with extended family where I had to spend 10 days visiting. So if you go back to my podcast, I believe on obligation, I said that was a bad thing to do. And yet I went ahead and did it anyways. And then I also had a fun trip in there where I got to visit my besties, Javi and Chris, up in Milwaukee, and that was a lot of fun. But all in all, that means that I have not been able to do a lot of podcasting, but I'm going to fix that right now, right here. We're going to talk about what other people in other countries find weird about America. Everywhere around the world. There's this website called Quora, Q-U-O-R-A.com. Many of you have probably heard of it, and it's a question and answer site. And as far as discussions goes, I have found it to be one of the higher quality websites out there where it's not a lot of people just uh, yelling at each other or making fun of each other, but they actually have questions on all sorts of topics ranging from anything from politics to culture to history to science. And I believe the site used to actually qualify its answerers so that if you were to answer a science question, you actually had to be uh, proven to be a scientist. Uh, That's not the case anymore. Anyone can sign up to answer questions, and I think it's probably made it probably a lot more diverse. One of my favorite questions that's constantly asked are things about what do foreigners find weird about Americans? So this one I have pulled up here is, what are American customs that seem weird to foreigners? And they have all sorts of related questions. Uh, does anyone, does, it, uh, does any American find their culture weird? Are foreigners interested in Americans? What American dishes seem disgusting to foreigners? <laughs> why should Indians work customer support for Americans and why Americans can't have their own customer support? Well, that's, isn't that a good question? What Indian customs might seem strange to Americans? What do some American cities purposefully try to stay weird? What are the most notable American inventions in foreign regimes that have backfired on them? etc., etc.? And so I've read many, many, many of these posts. And what I've done is I've assembled a list of about a dozen things that foreigners find weird with America. And I, I don't know why I find it so fascinating. It's kind of an interesting mirror to see something that you consider or that I consider so normal— be seen as so alien and stupid or ridiculous or unnecessary or disingenuous to someone else. And of course, this is all just based on how we grew up. So as I always like to talk about, how you're sort of defined and programmed as a child is how you're going to see everything throughout your entire life. Now, one nice thing that that most of these people do who are answering this question is that they do admit that you can't just characterize everyone as one collective, that there's different folks and different preferences, and they do acknowledge that America is a large country with a lot of different regions. Uh, some people would even consider it, you know, several countries put it together when you think about how different, suppo- well, how supposedly different, like the Northeast is different from the the Bible Belt South, or how the Rust Belt is different in California. I don't think the, cha- the differences are really that big between regions, but it's nice that they do admit that everyone's not the same. So I'm going to go through this list, and I don't know if, if I want to defend these practices and say, no, they're not weird, and this is why everyone should have them. Or maybe I can look at them and think, you know, should be change, and, you know, could could this actually be done differently or better, as these foreigners suggest. So here we go. I've read hundreds of responses to this question about why Amer- what makes Americans different, and almost universally, the thing that foreigners completely hate, but they completely find preposterous, is Americans' extreme friendliness towards strangers, their ability for small talk, and especially the use of the phrase, how are you, to say hello, because they find it to be disingenuous and confusing, because most people... Are not just ask you know, actually asking how you are, they're mostly just saying hello. And that's the impression people get. I'm going to read one post by Alvin Tanasta from Indonesia. He hates extreme friendliness towards strangers. This is just plain weird for me. Looking at the barista, talking to the customer like he has known him for years. Later, when the same customer comes back, the barista is going to act like he hasn't known him before, and a similar superficial conversation is going to happen again. Oh, please no, don't do that. Just shut up and get your coffee. In addition, I find that, quote, how are you, is one of the most disturbing questions to answer ever. This question just does not have any meaning. No, you don't want to know how I'm doing. If it is just a way of being friendly or to greet... Just say hello. In most cultures, if you are asking a stranger, how are you, they will think that you're a creep or maybe even a pedophile if you're asking a child or teenager. So that's pretty damning. This guy really doesn't like the question, how are you? And as an American, as a representative of the American people here for the purposes of this podcast, I can tell you that this is absolutely true, that we use the word, how are you, all the time. Where I live, down south, not only do we say how are you when we're walking by someone, a stranger, on the street, but we may even have a fairly detailed question uh, conversation rather about the weather. It wasn't so much when I lived up in New England, and I've even seen it so worse that in Milwaukee, for example, I've been shopping at a store and have picked a particular brand of toothpaste, and the clerk will have a elongated conversation about the type of toothpaste that her sister prefers and might even walk me over to show me that brand. So the small talk, the how are you can get pretty intense here. But I want to show you a little bit more that's even more extreme. What I have here is the Southern Handbook. The Southern Handbook is a guide to living the good life. And it's for people who have moved here from up north to understand how to be a Southerner, since it's a very specific thing. I'm not sure if everybody is required to buy this. If you grew up here, you don't have to get a copy. Uh, But the book has topics such as—we're going to go on a little uh, tangent here— such as food, you know, such as how to make Big Bed, buttermilk biscuits, uh, how to make great grits, uh, supreme sausage gravy, how to boil your goobers, which are peanuts. Uh, Part two is style, which is like how to wear— cowboy boots, uh, or how to tell a great story. Uh, Part three is drink, like how to drink like a southerner, a lot about bourbon, and sporting and adventure, and other stuff. It's produced by the magazine Garden and Gun, and I had once posted something about Garden and Gun to Facebook, and a libertarian friend of mine got really excited because he thought it would be a survivalist magazine on how to get the highest yield from your garden and, of course, how to maintain your guns and ammunition. But it's not. It's more like Martha Stewart for affluent white ladies. Anyways, so going back to the how are you. So things in the South, we're so friendly that we even have to say hi to people when we're driving our cars and they are driving their cars. So we're going way beyond just running into someone at the store or the barista. We're actually talking about people contained within vehicles. So I'm going to read this for you right now. This article is Finger Salutes by Donovan Webster. I always keep my right hand at the 12 o'clock on the steering wheel. That way, when I pass someone going the other way, even a stranger, I can lift my index finger and just say hi. It's a thing peculiar to the South. They don't do this in New England or California or Indianapolis. Even in the less urban parts, I know. The salute can go bigger. If you maybe recognize an acquaintance's car coming from the other direction, you can raise your index and middle finger in a kind of double salute peace sign. If it's a friend, you of course switch hands on the wheel and give the whole full hand wave. If you don't, they're likely to worry that you're mad at them. They know you saw them. It's a politeness thing you know, quote, I want to acknowledge you. Unless you're in Atlanta or maybe Charlotte or D.C., nobody honks your horn a heck of a lot. The salute is an antidote to such disturbance of the peace. By now, the salute has gone deep in my blood. More than once, driving to my farm, I've given the high sign to my neighbor's guinea hens, who have a gift of getting out of the pen and out onto the road to pick up tiny bits of gravel to help their gullets. I don't know where it came from, Maybe it's been around since long before Henry Ford got busy, more than a century ago. Maybe we've been hailing each other from carriages, penny-farthing bicycles, horseback, wagons. I don't know if it'll ever evolve into anything else, but it's there. And the other person usually responds in kind. I appreciate it. So there it is from Garden and Guns, The Southerner's Handbook. I bet that would drive Alvin Tanasta from Indonesia absolutely fucking bonkers if he had to say hello to people while driving past them in a car. So going back to me as being a self-appointed representative of the United States, speaking to would-be foreigner listeners, let me, either, let me say that I think we should give up some of the more disingenuous use of how do you do or how are you when we especially just mean to say hello. This said, a lot of times the question is genuine. When we, we actually meet friends, it's a great way of opening up and saying not only hello, but I, I care about you and I wanna hear what's with you. I wanna hear about your, your your state right now. And sometimes people don't always just say fine, which is supposed to be the default answer. Sometimes you get, oh, I you know had a real stressful You know week at work or i'm just getting over a bug and so in that way i think it's a great way to have a default where we show both empathy and cheerfulness as sort of the baseline for meeting our fellow humans it's a great natural state and it almost sounds like it'd be perfect for how a free society would want to behave where every interaction is started with empathy and cheerfulness. Now this isn't to say that freedom requires everyone to be angels. We know that this isn't true. It's actually freedom is the only system that can support not having angels. And that's probably why we don't want to have a government because everyone is not that nice. Everyone is not naturally empathetic and cheerful. I also think that there's something fundamentally capitalistic or market oriented about showing empathy and cheerfulness when you meet someone to say, how are you, is sort of also to say, you know, what do you need? Uh, what can I get you to make you happier? You know, what what state can be different for you? And what state are you in now? So it's almost the beginning of how you would approach m- meeting someone's needs. You know, how are you? And whether that's in a commercial context, that means, you know, giving them you know, helping them out with the, the product or service that they want or in a personal context by seeing what you can offer them to make them happier. So all in all, I'm going to say, yes, we can pull back on the how do you do in some situations, but otherwise I think if we're going to be a good freedom loving society, we need to start out interactions with em- empathy and cheerfulness and others would be smart to do the same. issue number two that foreigners seem to think is bad or crazy is tipping they all seem to hate tipping mark boyer from the uk writes it appears to be customary to tip absolutely everyone for absolutely anything even if they are simply doing their job which they are already paid to do even for things like carrying some bags a few feet and then the professional treatment, which I understand that is dished out to large tippers. Money talks, but it just appears to be a little uncivilized to me. Well, Mark, I'm sorry that this practice seems uncivilized to you, but I'm going to come out in support of tipping. I think the more tipping, the better. I mean, I can understand the frustration because you don't know necessarily when you're supposed to tip, how much, and when it's appropriate, when it's optional, or... In restaurants, for example, where the entire compensation structure of the wait staff and the bartenders is based on tipping. They actually have a special minimum wage for wait staff and, and bartenders. At least 30 years ago when I was one, I think the wage was two dollars and fifty cents, accounting that you would make up to twelve or fifteen or even twenty dollars an hour once tips were factored in. In general, though, I, I think anytime you can get transactions more immediate base to performance and the value that you receive, the better they're going to be. So that's why in these sort of service-intensive industries, tipping is very is good because it's going to directly affect your experience that you have. Anytime that you take the transaction further and further away from the service you get, usually the service gets worse. If you want to think about our health insurance system or school or college where you pay for things without regard to the individual transactions, the costs tend to get very high and the service gets very low. It gets expensive and crappy. Also with tipping, there's often a great place to not have taxes involved. So I know when I was a waiter, they did presume that some of the amount of your income was coming in tips and the government would, it usually 8% of what the, the bill cost was, So they would still account for taxes in your tips. In a lot of other industries, though, they don't have any kind of um, method in place to count tips. So tips are a great way to give people income without paying taxes. Now, during Ron Paul's 2012 campaign, he came out big with a small piece of legislation that was to exclude tip income from income tax. And... It was framed at the time to be the small program that look you know waitresses and bartenders you can keep your tip money without paying taxes and and sort of framed it as if it was only affecting this very small amount of people Now I sort of saw something different in this legislation that if he made if all tips were now tax free, just about every business under the sun would reorganize their their payment or their pricing or their compensation models where a lot more of their revenues would be based on tip. So the plumber might come in and would only charge you for the parts and his markup and then would suggest that all of the service fees be a recommended tip. The, the same thing could happen with your dentist or the person who mows your lawn. Instead of having direct fees, everybody would just say, tip me this recommended amount and while the exchange would then still be would be voluntary as you know as they all are then all of that revenue would not be taxed and that would have been pretty kick ass but the legislation didn't go through and we still have to pay taxes on tips even businesses that don't have a formal mechanism like the restaurants do for tracking tips the individual who's receiving the tips is still supposed to pay income tax on those and you're supposed to on good faith report those to the IRS. So little little tip from me to you. Okay, next up. The foreigners were a little bit irked that we don't include taxes in the price tag at the store. So the end price is a bit of a surprise when it has that four to eight percent sales tax added on at the register. So I'm going to concede here with the foreigners. I think, yeah, we probably should just put those uh, taxes into the the total on the the price sticker. Uh, at the same time, it's kind of nice to have the taxes visible at the register. When the taxes are just baked in, for example, when you buy a fifth of vodka or a package of cigarettes almost half or even more than half of that product is taxes is luxury taxes consumption taxes baked right in and so you don't even realize that the the twenty dollar bottle of vodka this is in massachusetts for example this is a real example is actually eleven dollars in taxes and then nine dollars in both the cost for the bottle of vodka and the liquor stores markup with Taxes being added on extra, you get to sit there and see how much of your money the government is taking versus what's going towards the the profit and the product. so in that way, it's nice that they add on the taxes at the end now what what they could do and which would probably be you know just just like how government always campaigns to have like you know gMO foods labeled or for McDonald's to put up you know the calories and the ingredients in their food. In the name of transparency, is maybe they should have, we should have like tax transparency as well. And if it wasn't too much to put on the sticker or maybe on your receipt, they could have all of the taxes, both the sales tax, which you see at the end, and then all of the baked in taxes could be there just like ingredients on a piece of food. We would also see the taxes. So I think that would be pretty neat. Not that I want to necessarily you know, have a, uh, <laughs> a, you know, six inch by six inch label on every Apple we pick up. But, you know, tax transparency would be nice. But anyway, yeah, let's, let's include the, the taxes and prices so people don't get confused. Wrong, isn't it?
0: But it feels so
2: Right. Then it's a deal?
1: Yes, we eat our pizza the wrong way.
2: Crust first. Introducing stuffed
0: crust pizza from Pizza Hut. With a ring of cheese baked into a totally new, thinner crust, you'll want to eat it the
2: wrong way. Crust first.
1: May I have the last slice?
2: Actually, you're only entitled to half. Large is $9.99. That was our soon-to-be president of the United States, Donald Trump, and one of his former wives making jokes about Pizza Hut's new cheese cropped. Cheese, cheese stuffed crust pizza and uh, making a divorce joke there at the end, apparently the joke being on her as that relationship did end up in divorce. The next three complaints by foreigners all sort of go together, and that's the size of portions in restaurant being too big. And here, Jeetanjali Sharma, who has been on two trips to the United States, writes, Portions. The portion size in America are not normal. I am not even kidding. You'd complain about the price initially, but when you actually see the amount of food you get on your plate, you'd simply be gobsmacked. So I had to look up the meaning of the word gobsmack, and in case you're wondering, it means completely dumbfounded, shocked, and it's from the Irish word gob, meaning mouth. So new vocabulary word for you today, gobsmack. I was completely gobsmacked. Pretty cool. Anyway, so yeah, you're right. The food portions are pretty insane sometimes. And if you actually went into, and it's mostly like in in cheaper or sort of middle of the road restaurants, uh, sort of the fern restaurants that you'd see highwayside, like an Applebee's or a TGI Friday's. And if you do order like one of their hamburgers and, and go nuts and get a uh, buffalo tenders beforehand and a pile of fries, you're going to have way too much food. And this, 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 you know, links up to these other ones that they don't like, which is eventually we're going to talk about obesity, but yeah, so they're right. And, but at the same time, it's hard to complain about getting, you know, too much value for your money. So the whole, the whole point is, is it to be, to have have this be your restaurant experience to be very opulent. Uh, When you, when you actually go to nicer restaurants, they actually don't try to stuff you quite as much. You'll get like a normal, you know, portions of food, but In this sort of middle to low tier, you want to be, you know, the the restaurant wants to have you overwhelmed with the bounty that you're getting. So yeah, the food portions are probably too big if you are recommended to eat the whole thing, but my personal advice is, is don't eat it all. Or if you must order one and split it with a friend, or you could even take part of it home. I think it's the Olive Garden now, which also has massive portions, but they were running a special where if you bought one meal, they would actually give you a second meal for free to take home. So I'm just imagining that the foreigners seeing this special, where you already given too much food to eat on your first course, to be given a whole complete second free dinner must be just completely overwhelming. Anyway, the next one that people don't understand about America is that we give free refills of soda and coffee. So you can sit all day and drink as much soda you want after just buying one cup. And I what I why I think restaurants do this is because it's just you know, it's so cheap to do. The they're only giving pennies of soda water and syrup away. So again, that's sort of like over delivering on what you bought. To you know, provide this sense of of bounty and opulence and uh, generosity. So, overall, I think that's probably a good thing. I'm, you know, I only probably drink like two sodas a year, so the the, the free refill is sort of lost on me, uh, in the sense that I don't get to take advantage of it. But I know my eight year old boy would go absolutely bananas to have as much soda as he wanted if we permitted him to do so. Uh, next is obesity for poor people, fitness for rich people. And this is a, a common complaint that presumably all of the, the poor and sort of middle-class people are, are mistakenly eating the entire food portions at Applebee's and then are actually going back to get, you know, two or three or five refills of their soda and it's making them fat. On the other side, rich people they complain about being so sort of obsessively fit that there's a huge fitness culture here as far as going to the gym, jogging, etc. and that's that's pretty interesting. I think it's a, a fine sign of anti-poverty here in the United States where it's, you know, to be poor is to be have too many calories to consume versus being poor meaning not having enough food. And you know, honestly, if the, the basic income guarantee, universal basic income people have their way and we have technological unemployment and everyone goes on, on UBI, starvation isn't going to be what's going to happen after technology takes our jobs. Everyone's going to be, become so fat and so heavy that we'll have to re-engineer every chair and every doorway in the country to accommodate our giant asses. So as the representative of the United States of America, I am neither endorsing nor putting down free soda, massive portions, and fat poor people. I think everyone should probably take care of themselves. I don't think there's anything sort of systemic or institutional that should be, you know, done away with this. But if people want to learn how not to be fat, then they're perfectly free to do so. There's plenty of stuff on the internet, and everyone pretty much knows the dangers of eating too much Applebee's. All in all, the monstrous food portions are a brazen show of our abundance and our relationship with food, where we're producing so much of it that we plate dinners with the assumption that half of it will be thrown away. So it's a big middle finger to poverty and hunger. USA! U.S.A. I
1: want my baby back, baby back, baby back, chilly, baby back, baby back, baby I want my baby back, chilly, baby back, I got my baby back.
2: I could have almost included this one in the previous section because it sort of is more on the consumption, eating and drinking thing. But a lot of the Quarren foreigners really don't like the idea of a lot of ice in their drinks. Anyway, I think this is just a preference and perhaps maybe a reflection on our state of technology, especially if you're coming from a uh, more 3rd worldish type place that maybe doesn't put a lot uh, into having ice machines everywhere. I personally like ice. When you have like a soda or something or an iced coffee, it dilutes the drink a little bit, makes it a little bit smoother. And then if you want to, you can crunch on them at the end. Here down south, it's not unusual to have a real commercial ice machine in your house because you're consuming so much ice between both filling your cooler and all the drinks that you're having. My only question is why do we not put ice in beer? It seems like beer would be a perfect thing to have over ice. It sort of sounds disgusting as I say it, but I'm thinking something light and like a Miller Lite or an America which is what they call Budweiser now would probably work out pretty well over ice. So maybe I'll give that a shot and let you know how it goes. But anyways, foreigners, sorry about the ice. Uh, when you're at the restaurant simply request not to have ice and otherwise, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with team USA here. Slightly on topic is that the UPS just showed up at my house with the munch pack for my kids. And this is a box of food such as candy, chips crackers snacks cookies etc that just comes once a month it's like a subscription and you just get a box of of junk food in the mail and they they go absolutely bananas so i would think that if the if these angry foreigners on quora knew about this they'd probably be pissed about that too uh oddly or perhaps ironically the all the snacks are foreign snacks so they all come from mexico and japan so it's a little bit of a cultural trip to see what kind of crappy food the rest of the world is eating. Anyways, back to our usual program. So you don't like too much ice. The other thing that they find weird is drinking tap water. So a lot of foreigners express disgust in the idea that we Americans will just put a glass under the tap and drink it right there. In general, I'm I'm thinking that this is a good thing that Again, if, if, if a lot of countries are in a perpetual state of Flint where the water is only good to do laundry but not drink, that it's you know sort of a, a impoverished versus a wealthy type thing that we have enough money that we can ensure that water right out of the tap is potable. If it's a cultural thing where it just seems like it's disgusting, like it'd be the same as drinking out of the toilet, then uh, I could see them being weird about it, but uh, something that everyone could get used to. Um, if, if the rest of the world is in just a state of Flint where the water's no good, then I sort of feel bad for them that they can't access water and feel blessed that we do at the same time. We never really do a cost analysis of what potable water is costing us. So if you think of all the water that we consume around the household, everything from washing dishes to washing clothes, to taking a shower, to brushing your teeth, to, even watering the lawn or washing the car, the actual amount of water that goes down your throat is probably very small. So very rarely do we sit there and do an analysis of like, well, should we really spend all the money to make sure all of this water is pure enough for drinking? Or would it be much more cost effective to only purify that small portion of water that we drink to a potable level and then keep all the rest of the water Uh, You know, not not potable, but not necessarily poisonous either. And there probably could be a case for that. My personal water consumption for my five-person family is about $100 per month, and that includes everything from showers and baths to laundry and drinking. I would have to imagine that only getting—that's sewer as well— that if I had to buy, you know, a bottle of water is probably a buck— 100 bucks, that'd be a 100 bottles. That probably wouldn't be enough water. Presumably, maybe I'd get like one of those uh, big water cooler type things that you see in an office, but I still think it's probably negligible to having potable water come out for everything. So I'll say again, let's go with Team USA on this one and let's have potable water coming out of our sinks and let's drink it. Mm.
3: America, America,
2: America. The next thing that baffles foreigners in our country. Are our return policies. Basically, just about any store for 30 or 90 days, you can take back any piece of merchandise, almost regardless of its condition. And if you have the receipt, they will give you a full refund or a store credit. And apparently, in other countries, this is not the case. There was a famous case study probably about 20 years ago, and I think it was Nordstrom, which is a high end retailer. And they had such a generous return policy that they once took back a pair of tires, a set of tires. And the ironic thing was, or the weird thing, is that they didn't sell tires to begin with. They, were pride, they pride themselves on being so customer-focused that they would even take back returns to merchandise they didn't sell. Now, this sounds kind of stupid to me, but it was sort of an illustration of how sort of customer-centric they were. And really, I think return policies might be one of the nicest and biggest examples of how free markets work in their most heightened and greatest form, because it's showing that you want cooperation and sustainment of your customers uh, over the long term instead of going for short-term profits. So whereas the the classic image of the, the businessman or the store being that they will... Screw over their customers, you know, rape and pillage to get profits at any cost is actually very demonstrably false because we can see that they will, you know, eat profits in the short term to make sure that they can have a long sustained relationship. And I have this with my business, which is a professional services uh, firm. Uh, We have essentially a return policy. We make sure that if someone's not happy with, the work that they we did that they don't have to pay for it or we make sure we make it right at no additional expense and just about every business on earth does this if they don't do it overseas i'm not really sure what's broken there whether they just don't understand that the value of a return customer is so much greater than that one time sale or whether there's some other uh you know, part of part of sort of just basic business and economics that they may not understand, and that could very well be the truth. Is that in maybe a lot of the countries they are very short sighted in how they deal with customers. The same thing with customer service. Uh, a lot of people on this chorus site uh, just can't believe the customer service they receive receive here. As far as people, agents and and clerks and whatever bending over backwards to do whatever the customer wants. And again, this is the same thing. It's, it's another great expression of the free market and commerce is that you spend money and you give more to your customers because you know that kind of relationship is going to be better than giving them bad service or, or trying to reduce costs and maximize short-term profits. So again, well, foreigners, while you're here, enjoy our, our generous return policies and our great customer service.
3: Woohoo! USA! USA! USA!
2: Next up on the foreigners' complaint list is our lack of public transportation. Well, there is public transportation in most of our big cities, such as Boston, New York, and DC. I guess a lot of their cities are, uh, don't have very good public transportation. I'm looking at you, Detroit, or probably Orlando or Miami. Uh. Well, I don't know what to say here. Um, I did like having subways, uh, buses less so when I lived in Boston. It was very convenient and made a lot of sense. Uh, not not a big fan of necessarily of how they're typically implemented and how they're run. They're usually run by governments, and they're usually funded by people who don't use them. Uh, here we do have a big country that's very spread out, um, which doesn't necessarily lend itself to public transportation a lot of people try to get in a bind about what the government should be doing about public transportation whether we should have a large public rail system that spans the country similar to how they have in Europe but you know to be honest the public transportation is sort of a big symbol of the ineffectiveness of our government it's not really that we're not letting the government have a chance they took over the trains years ago and they've been a wholesale disaster Amtrak has been unprofitable and unused in just about every one of their routes, except for one. And then the government also built the highways. So they paid for the sort of anti-public transportation mode that everyone seems to prefer. Now, when people ask for public rail, I say to hell with trains or buses. If we're really going to blow some money on some public transportation, I want something that looks more like an Airbus. And I don't mean the company, but I mean... Airplanes that maybe fly for 50 or 100 miles land in in minimalist airports that look more like just a bus stop, you know, without security or anything, where you can get on and actually go somewhere relatively quickly so that you could probably travel 50 or 100 miles in 10 minutes, not get on a bus or a train and have it take uh, hours and hours or days and days. But that's just my preference. Anyway, sorry. uh, Sorry, non-Americans. I don't know what to do with your lack of public transportation here. Uh, You'll have to rent a car. Sorry. (laughs) Next up on the list is that Americans don't see their families very often. And what I would understand this to be is that a lot of times kids, as soon as they turn 18 or 22, whatever, they move far away from their families and maybe only see them once or twice a year during Thanksgiving or Christmas. And this varies greatly from with the foreigners experience at home where perhaps they have multiple generations even living in the same home or they are constantly getting together day by day or week by week to be with family. Not sure what to say about this. That's just not our thing. Although I bet it's going to be a lot more common as we're seeing a lot more adults move back in with their parents as the as they come out of the schooling system and the university system unable to find work. So maybe this trend will reverse in the long term. And we will have multi-general families that see each other very often. I don't know. Let's talk toilet paper. A lot of the Indian respondents to these questions find our use of toilet paper to clean up after we go number two to be absolutely repulsive. And I can't see any reason why, after doing the most toxic body function possible, that we would use paper to push around the the poo-poo. Uh, around our anuses with paper, and not use the, the vastly superior either water-to-hand method or having a shower, uh, sort of like one of those sink uh, sink showers that you pull out of your sink that's like a hand handheld spray, and using that to clean yourself. And even to the point where they find themselves trapped in American bathrooms because they, they don't even want to think about using toilet paper, and are completely helpless without their hand sprayer. And so I would just in this one I'd like to say bravo you to you people in other countries who have figured out that a hand sprayer would probably be a better way of doing this than toilet paper. That sounds perfectly refreshing to me. And I'm all on board. So let's call us the third world country and look forward to having those hand sprayers installed in our bathrooms. The only part of it that I was a little bit confused about is I was also had always heard that the the subcontinent uh, had you know like two thirds of the people had horrible access to water, so I don't know if these are just happened to be very affluent Indians who have these these hand showers, or whether the the impoverished people who who have to walk to the river to get their water uh, have another method. So leave a comment if you know, but otherwise. I'm um, against Team U- USA on the toilet paper. Maybe a good compromise would be to have both, and that way you could choose, or you could sort of blast yourself with the hand shower, and instead of uh, dripping wet into your underpants or whatever, you could use some uh, paper towels or, or toilet paper to pat dry. And then maybe maybe you could even have some talcum powder on the side and a little bit of perfume and really shine that baby up. Okay, almost done with the list of things that foreigners find weird. I'm gonna bang through the last four items before moving on to the second half of the podcast. No, maybe not second half, but to the the rest of the podcast. Uh, the first one is the metric system. Oddly enough, there's not that many gripes, even though I think there's only one. There's only like two or three countries in the entire world that use the the Queen's measurement system of feet, feet and miles, and pounds and ounces, etc. Uh, there wasn't too many people who complained that we had to get on it. Uh, some people did. Uh, frankly, it, it doesn't, I think for most people, it doesn't hinder everyday life. It probably would be good maybe to be uh, by measurement at this point or just fully go over to the metric system. So I'm going to side with the foreigners here. And, you know, if I had some magic wand, like if somehow I had the ability to teach all of the children the same thing, for fifteen thousand hours a year, I might include the metric system. I think that would probably get it done over a course of a couple of generation. Uh, the next one, healthcare. This one seemed to be more of a scare story um, because they they didn't seem to really experience the healthcare system, but the whole idea that they'd have to pay for it was pretty reprehensible. Uh, honestly, I think the U.S. healthcare system is absolutely horrible. I've talked a lot about this check out at Ford in America part one. And honestly, I think the whole world fucks this up beyond belief. So I'm, I'm not for this single payer care and I don't like uh, fascist care that we have. I think everybody's missed the mark on making healthcare more like apps and food and televisions and everything else that is cheap, abundant and continually progressing. Uh, the last was, most people can't believe the patriotism, the flags, the Pledge of Allegiance, the songs, and I think this, if you go back to my F word in America part two, nationalism, I go into this pretty heavy. The The big difference here is that we actually have some validation that the rest of the world doesn't do this. So it's presumably, if you go to Indonesia or Chile or whatever, they don't, those are just random examples they don't have, you know, flags on their houses and in, insist on the songs and the the constant reinforcement of of the state. So, that's the end of the list. The other thing that there were sort of perceptions that that people brought up that I didn't think were really reflected in their experience when they came here. So, for example, some of the foreigners were worried about our gun culture even though most you know ninety five percent of people who are here never really have gun experiences on a day to day basis of any sorts, and most people probably don't never, never even see them unless they're on the side of a cop uh, They talked about our ribald political system um lots of match you know mentions of how crazy it is that that Trump's up there and everything like that and again that's something that's just more on t v in my opinion than we experience in a day to day. And then the same for violence and police brutality, which none of these things, you know, are laughing matters. But again, it's, it's more of like what's on the news, you know, guns, politics, violence, police brutality, and not the common American experience, in my opinion. So there's the Quora list about what foreigners find freaky about Americans. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Oops, this isn't for me. This is for someone else.
1: Welcome, everyone. It's great to be here. Now, there's one thing that we know for sure, that nature is good for us. We've known this for millennia. 2,000 years ago, Taoist monks wrote about the healing powers of working in greenhouses and tending gardens. And in 1984, E.O. Wilson wrote about our deep primal need to affiliate with nature and the natural world and coined the term biophilia. This concept of biophilia is becoming ever more urgent as we consume the biodiversity around us and separate ourselves more and more from the natural world. As of 2010, we have officially become an urban species. More of us live in cities than don't, and that is a trend that's continuing and accelerating. It has progressively drawn us inside Away from the natural world. And now the average North American and European spends 90% of their time indoors. That remaining 10%, well, Five of that is spent in a car, <laughs> if not more. I hear some commuters laughing in the audience. This is, a, this is an environment very different from our ancestral origins, and it's a relatively modern thing. So how has this radical shift in lifestyle affected our minds and body?
2: So these Quora feeds have you know, dozens, maybe 50, 60 articles posted to each topic if they're popular, and these what foreigners think about Americans are no exception. They're one of the more busy ones. While scanning this and doing my analysis, I found one article by Christian Vidrascu on nature versus non-nature for Americans, and this was not an opinion that was expressed by many people, unlike all the other ones I went through. This was just one guy's or one woman's opinion that I found pretty interesting. And Christian has traveled to over 30 countries multiple times. So here, I'm going to read it for you. I find the American love-hate relationship with nature somewhat weird. On one hand, people in the U.S. cherish their natural parks, protect wildlife, and build and maintain nature trails. People take vacations in their wonderful parks and generally refrain from leaving trash, disturbing the flora and fauna, or otherwise disrespecting their nature. They often go to the beach and enjoy clean water and clean sand. On the other hand, in everyday life, people avoid anything natural like the plague. Any food ingested must be as unnatural as possible. Coca-Cola and other chemical-laden liquids loaded with sugar or corn syrup have replaced water for many people. If water is consumed, it must be loaded to the brim with ice. See, there's that ice thing again. Raw milk is illegal in most states. Apples and other fruits are polished with chemicals for a shiny look. Taste and health effects are lower priorities. Tomatoes and many types of produce have been bred out of existence and replaced by genetically similar plants devoid of any taste. Meat is injected with chemicals before being sold, and certain staples of human nutrition, such as animal organs, have disappeared from the typical American diet, chicken liver being the only exception. Lifestyles have evolved to avoid any interaction with nature. Office buildings are built with windows, which can never be opened. Fresh air is, avoided, is to be avoided at all costs. The workday keeps most people inside during daylight hours, and there's a commonly held belief in the US that sunlight is dangerous. I did hear that one from other people. People work sitting in an unnatural position for most of the workday. Lunchtime for people in the workforce is generally generally is usually limited to half an hour or an hour for very speedy eating, with no time for digestion, rest, or a nap. Human movement is something that is done at specific intervals, exercise sessions, but otherwise avoided. Air conditioning is ubiquitous in almost all seasons, again keeping people completely separated from nature's temperature and humidity for that particular day. Laws in most jurisdictions severely discourage walking or any other natural means of locomotion. The sun, and sunlight in general, is portrayed as the enemy. It is seen as responsible for cancer rather than vitamin D, increased bone strength, better mood, and life. People generally avoid it or block its rays with sunscreen. People with houses often have only one type of vegetation, called a lawn, and are forced by law to keep it trimmed. No wildflowers or weeds are allowed to grow. Outdoor seating at restaurants is restricted, partially by consumer choice, partially by laws. Clothes, cleaning supplies, detergents, hygiene products, and many household products are laden with chemicals, and few are made at home. Part of this phenomenon is cultural. Maybe nature was a tough thing to conquer during the early settlement days and left some sort of trauma in the collective American psyche in part is social engineering through laws, the creation of the suburbs, food laws, building codes, or standardized working conditions. This analysis in my opinion is somewhat linguistic because when we define nature, we're basically defining nature as anything not being of man. So it's not too much of a surprise that things that man do are inherently non-natural. So there's no almost no way we can exist without being non-natural. And it also is a great statement of preference and luxury, because most of the things that we want to do, we do not want to be bothered. Uh, say if we're working at a computer, or eating our dinner, or sleeping, we don't necessarily want to be harassed by breezes, or the humidity, or insects, or as she says, sunlight, he says... And so all in all, I think this is a good thing that our experiences with nature are always preferred. they're preferential and they're by choice. They're at the times that we want to take the time to actually either you know enjoy the beauty of nature, enjoy the fresh air, get exercise, etc. And the fact that it's not integrated into the day-to-day life, especially, especially with uh, the way people work and the way people live, uh, just makes a lot of sense. And so I think if you were, of peoples that were forced to constantly commune with nature in all of your activities, whether it be going to the bathroom or working or eating or sleeping, that we, it would be a discomfort and an overall negative. So that's sort of my take on this. I, I thought it was pretty clever, but in the end, I don't think it means a whole lot. Okay, let's now turn our, our attention to another group of crazy foreigners who have some different views about Americans
3: say the collapse of the world economy or a nuclear first strike, but I can say with certainty that you will be safer in France if Trump becomes president. Really? The reason there are so many terrorist attacks in France and Europe right now is because ISIS is losing on the battlefield. Their caliphate is crumbling. And that's great. I mean, fuck their state. These Cretans need to be wiped off the face of the earth. Obviously, Benjamin, you aren't familiar with the radical Islam debate on Dubuque versus Dabique. No, I'm not. Okay, before ISIS, if you wanted to grow out your beard and decapitate apostates, you only really had one option, and that's al-Qaeda. People forget, but they were really totally focused only on the West. In fact, one of Osama bin Laden's early mottos was First we take Manhattan, and then we take Dubuque Dubuque, Iowa Yeah, Uh, Osama had a total hard-on for the heartland For him, Dubuque would be the new center of radical American Islam He even had all these little architectural models built up Where the Sharia Supreme Court would be where the mosques would go, uh, jihadi summer camps. Come on, that, that's ridiculous. That's exactly what a young al-Qaeda recruit named Abu Mausab al-Zarqawi, who you may have heard of, said to Osama bin Laden's face when the two met for the first time in Kandahar. Zarqawi believed real jihadis would aim for Dabiq, which is actually a town in Syria. There are some old Islamic prophecies this is where the final Battle of Armageddon will supposedly be fought in Dabique, an epic end-of-the-world battle between invading Christians and Muslims. Debique is also the name of the ISIS propaganda magazine. Yes. Okay, here's the basic picture.
0: Whatever else may be wrong with our world, it remains a fact that many of the most terrifying examples of human conflict and stupidity would be unthinkable without religion. And some religions are worse than others. This Finnish woman's celebration of the, quote, martyrdom of her child, that's religion. And it's not every religion. That's what a belief in paradise gets you. A Hindu wouldn't believe that. A Buddhist wouldn't believe that. A Jew wouldn't believe that. And needless to say, an atheist wouldn't believe that. And this belief, and its horrific implications, is not the product of U.S. foreign policy. Or perhaps one of you wants to ask Noam Chomsky whether we've dropped too many bombs on Finland. Now, nearly 15 years have passed since a group of mostly educated and middle-class men decided to obliterate themselves along with 3,000 innocents, to gain entrance to an imaginary paradise. And this problem has always been deeper than the threat of terrorism. And our waging an interminable, quote, war on terror is no answer to it. Yes, we must destroy al-Qaeda and ISIS and similar groups. And given the significance that jihadists throughout the world now place on the caliphate, I think smashing ISIS decisively would be a very good thing to do. As things currently stand, jihadists still imagine that they're in the process of conquering the world. We should make that impossible to imagine. But humanity has a larger project, to become sane. If September 11th should have taught us anything, it's that we must outgrow our attachment to divisive mythology we must find our consolation in our capacity for love and creativity and a real understanding of ourselves and the world. This is possible. It's also necessary. And the alternatives are bleak. But in the meantime, we have to admit that we are at war with jihadism and Islamist theocracy in a way that we're not at war with any other strand of religion. And Muslim moderates, wherever they are, are at war with jihadism and Islamist theocracy. And if they're not, they're not moderates. Well, I hope it's clear that these are not people we will ever be able to negotiate with. And they have already told us that they would view any truce as an opportunity merely to just gather strength For further attacks against us. So there really are some circumstances where war is the answer. Now the question of how to wage this war is a genuinely difficult one, and it would be much, much better if Muslim armies who did not share this ideology were turning their guns On this death cult. But in the absence of that effort, non-Muslim armies are clearly going to have to do this. And until that's done, until the caliphate is no more, until the jihadists have suffered a defeat so resounding that no one can even pretend their cause is still viable, we are going to continue to see the violent machinations of religious lunatics directed at us. They've told us as much, and we should take them at their word.
2: The first of those two clips was from my friend's podcast, Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything, that featured my friend Chris, who I had recently just taken my boys' retreat with. And this, this podcast is absolutely excellent. It's the best-produced podcast. Benjamin was hired by, I think, NPR 10 or 15 years ago to become a professional podcaster, and back then it was considered an absolutely outrageous position to be offered, and even I, I found it to be a bit incredible, but it, he started it into a career, and so seriously, check out that great podcast. The one that you just heard is called The Art of the Deal, and it's a almost like a parody or a comedy show about how Trump's going to handle... People in the Middle East and the ongoing ISIS ISIL crisis that's going on there in Iraq and Syria. The second clip was from Sam Harris, who is now an unwilling guest in my show multiple times, and his analysis of an article that just came out about uh, from Debeek about why Muslims want to kill Americans and what they find to be lacking in our culture, and our religiousocity and. Our ethics, etc., and why they want to eventually kill us all. And so the article is pretty interesting. And Chris had sent it to me before uh, we had met, and we probably talked more about this than I had ever talked about the Middle East. Uh, I I didn't actually know what ISIL or ISIS was. I had to later go to Wikipedia and do a little bit of research, Uh, as I don't I don't really watch the news. Probably if I did watch cable news, I'd be much more informed. But it was still interesting. So anyway, this article is from the magazine Dabik, which Dabik is a city in Syria, which is considered to be, as you heard, the holy place for a, a holy war eventually, where the the non-Muslims will fight the Muslims uh, to the death. But it's the, they named this publication that they actually released in English and several other languages that talks about what they're doing and what they want. And it turns out, I guess it's Al-Qaeda has another magazine, which is another group, uh, called Inspire, which is to not just recruit people into the the jihad, the, the Muslim jihad, but also to inspire people to do acts of violence and terrorism abroad. So that's kind of scary. If you're a big dummy about current events like I am, uh, it is pretty interesting to go on to Wikipedia or somewhere else and read about what ISIS and ISIL is. It turns out, that they're the same organization. And ISIS stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And then ISIL stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. And the Levant is a historical term sort of meaning the the coastal region that includes uh, Israel and Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, I think, and, and some other places. And anyway, so they're a group that has risen to take over like this, uh, the dumpy parts of Iraq that have been presumably uh, blown apart for the past fifteen years, and have been largely fled with the largest refugee population uh, that we've known of in the last twenty years. the The biggest rec- refugee populations in the last couple decades have been Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, Somalia, and I, I imagine Syria is is getting up there as well. But this is a group that has claimed the the sort of supremacy of uh, Sharia law and, and Muslim dominance, and they have found this sort of uh, junkyard to take over, and they have also they have established a, a caliphate, which is an area where, which holds the caliph, and that guy is sort of like the—I'm probably pronouncing these all wrong— but that holds sort of this Pope-like figure. Right now, I think it's al-Baghdadi, and— He's declared himself to be sort of the leader of Muslims the worldwide. Now he's not, he's not really recognized by most groups, not even some of the other nut jobs that are right in the region. So this magazine, Debeek, they published an article about why they want to kill us. And I will give you a little bit the highlights of what this article said and explain what you just heard of Sam Harris explaining his his thoughts on it. The article is why we hate you and why we fight you. And it's a really long, well-written article. And the main reasons that they state is number one: we hate you first and foremost because you're disbelievers. So we, since we reject the oneness of Allah, that's why they first want to kill us and why they want to, they want to, uh, why they hate us. Uh, number two: we hate you because you're secular. Liberal societies permit the very things that Allah has pro- prohibited, while banning many of the things He has permitted. A matter that doesn't concern you because you separ- separate between religious and state, religion and state, thereby granting supreme authority to your whims and desires via the legislatures you vote for into power. So we don't combine our state and our religion, and we don't we do things that aren't permitted uh, under you know under the law of Allah. Number three, in the case of the atheist fringe, we hate you and wage war against you because you disbelieve in the existence of your Lord and Creator. So these these are quite a bit tougher than um, not liking our uh, refillable drinks. Uh, Number four, we hate you for your crimes against Islam and wage war against you to punish you for your transgressions against our religion. And then five and six are both about this reason that I always uh, thought that these guys were pretty intense, which is we hate you for your crimes against the Muslims, your drones, and fighter jets, bomb, kill, and maim our people around the world. Uh, Number six, we hate you for invading our lands and fight to repel you and drive you out. So the neat thing about this article is that we, we can often talk about the blowback that we get from the Muslim countries, because for the last 14 years we've killed hundreds of thousands of their people, and that would be enough to irritate anyone enough to want to retaliate. But the special thing about this article is they actually state the reasons of from the religious point of view, which means presumably even if um, items five and six didn't exist, and they actually go on to say that those are the, the last of the reasons, uh, their religion alone would be enough to have them attack, you know, want us to to kill all the non-Muslims, which I agree is very scary. And if you listen to that that podcast that I, I posted some, which I had to edit just because it was going on too long uh, for my purposes, but Sam Harris goes on and reads the entire article and provides a lot more analysis than just the six minutes I put there, and He says that this is a good enough reason here why we need to destroy them in in totality and why war is justified. And earlier in the podcast, he talks about other people like Glenn Greenwald or Noam Chomsky who use that blowback uh, argument that these people are mostly so dangerous because we have spent years ravaging them, killing their children, killing their dads, their mothers, etc. And so... I don't. I'm not sure that I. I think that just because they wrote this this op-ed, and it's that it's true, that necessarily we can still take them for the word. I'm s- sure they're still using this, um, this batshit sort of stuff to attract people as best they can, but I don't think it necessarily justifies the continual continued uh, onslaught of killing people in the Middle East. Um, most most of the you know they. He says that an army of Muslims should come up and attack them and if you look up at this map of Syria in the the Syrian civil War uh, it is a bunch of different groups who are are Muslims and who are attacking them and also you could make the case that there was an army of Muslims called you know whatever Saddam Hussein's army was that was keeping these people in check for the most part. Keep in mind that the the 9 eleven attacks were all committed by Saudi Arabia's arabians and not people uh, in this club, you know, there these uh, Muslims in ISIS are also stunningly bad at it. I mean, obviously, if, if you're getting popula- refugee populations in massive historical numbers, that means most people are rejecting it. There's already 60 countries who are against ISIS and have launched attacks on them. And even within Syria itself, uh the the Syrian government, the Syrian opposition, the Federation of North Syria, and the Jabhat Feta sham are all sort of fighting against each other. the The other uh, the the fear of with this debate article is that the re- religious aspect is going to attract a lot of people, but it seems to actually be repelling a lot of people. People are leaving. There's other groups who are fighting, even the other sort of uh, crazy groups like Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah and these other ones don't recognize the caliphate, don't recognize the the leadership of, of ISIS or ISIL, and are actually fighting against it, even if they'll perhaps they want to call their own caliphate at some point. I really don't know. The also the the emergence of this article is I don't think is that big of a deal. The you know, there's already a 17-year-old tradition that this would have belonged to. So this this group of uh, crazy fundamentalist existed all throughout time for the last, you know, 1500 years. But you know, whenever they couldn't get traction, they they've been sort of beaten down. They've been, you know, living in basically a primitive state for this entire time. They probably couldn't have been enabled unless we the US had destroyed whatever resistance was there beforehand, which the u s has steadily done for the past fourteen hundred years uh these guys just really aren't very good at it because that's really the only place that they can even get a foothold is in the the ruins of the war. I feel pretty well adv- convinced that their the sort of primitism of their belief, such as you know not even having you know usury which is lending, is going to prevent them from doing anything that's fairly sophisticated in warcraft i I doubt they probably can have the science to process and refine steel or refine oil, they probably won't be able to build an aircraft carrier or a working airplane anytime soon. Most of the weapons that they get are from the West. I would and probably, if I were to guess, largely from the United States funding, you know, different groups th- down there. So in the end, you know, this 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 death cult, as he calls it, is probably really harmless if there was a six-year-old that was crippled that lived in California and wrote a letter saying that he wanted to beat you up. The last thing you would really need to do is spend a tremendous amount of resources to go over there and deal with him. It'd probably be better just to ignore him. Or if that worst case is do whatever protection you would need to stop that crippled six-year-old from making the flight over. Lastly, the Harris, Talks about how other religions would never have this type of thing, where they would insist upon killing other people, and it's the the, the promise of heaven that lets them have this, this this point of view. But what do we call the death cult of war that we that the U.S. has, has inflicted? So there there hasn't been like a definitive op-ed or a Bible-like book or declaration of why this this organization would need to kill, you know, an estimated between 160 to over a million people over this this course of time. And the thing is, is that I don't think there's really is a philosophy of death that's written down, but the manifestation of death still exists in ways that are are wholesale greater than this uh, ragtag group of. People in Iraq and and uh, Syria are able to commit, and so how how can we point the the finger right at them and say it's it's only their religion that causes them to murder on a small scale? But we don't have this basis of of whatever it is, you know, cable news and politics that says it's okay for this death cult to go and kill people. And Harris even. Goes through and talks about you know the brutality uh, in the Tabik magazine of how willingness how how willing they are to like behead someone to behead a Christian uh, or even another Muslim, and that seems barbaric. But what is our modern method of removing heads from bodies using drones any less evil any less murderous? Probably not. So if you know and I don't I don't know what's better is like if if you have a death cult that has a philosophy and I'm using that term generally just to mean like written down belief system and it's bad like a it's it's a death cult based on a bad philosophy or is it preferred to have a death cult that kills a lot more people but doesn't seem to have a philosophy at all you know at least with the the first one you might be able to refute the bad philosophy with the second one I don't know you just you know throw your hands up and go you know you know because tv so, and, and then at the end, and from a, a consequentialist point of view, the, the resources to go over and try to destroy them just seem, first of all, it's, uh, it's resources that are taken from us. So the predation is first put upon the U.S. people who have to have their money taken from them. And then secondly, on the people who are then uh, being, being killed over there. So I just don't think we should waste money and go over and kill people. If anything, if we want to sort of debunk a death cult, let's stop having a death cult ourselves. And maybe we could. And then plus, it's just not working Uh, for, for the 14 years or maybe even going back into the Iraq war before then or even going back into the Iranian coup back in the early 50s. The constant bombing of these people have not killed out their radical strains it seems to only bring them forward and really if you're going to recruit people to a radical cause i think you're going to need that trauma you need the trauma of having lots of people's families absolutely destroyed by people who have u.s flags on their uniforms or on the side of their robot planes so if, if you really want to help promote this bad philosophy death cult you're going to need to you know hurt hurt have children you know be be abused and confused and in constant trauma and stress because otherwise they just turn into the other people the refugees who decide to leave and not not participate so if anything i think you can look at the refugees as being the people who are reasonable and realize that they don't want to join the death cult lastly if we're going to end our death cult and that would be a stellar example. I think you could probably convince more people with a peaceful approach, even even if they were indoctrinated into the into the uh, the bad ISIS Muslim stuff. They could still maybe eventually see a, a sunnier way if if presented with people who were virtuous and, and peaceful and all of that. So you know, if we want to help, if we want to spend this taxpayer money. You know, let's help get the refugees out. Let's put them somewhere safe. Let's let's um, let's send the loonies. You know, some good good literature. You know, maybe we can have uh, Tony Robbins go over there and ask them about what love they weren't getting from their parents, or we can send them some Queen records or some Beatle records, and they could uh, get their dance on. Or send My Little Pony cartoons to their girls. Maybe we'll send Isaac's new book. Don't do things you hate. Good little plug in there for my friend Isaac Morehouse. Anyway, there's probably a lot more productive things we can do than just say it, it's our job to to kill them all. And so that's that's where I, I agree with Harris's point that we can't ignore the religiosity of the message, but I disagree with that makes a stunning and sweeping case to go murder them. So that's the end of our podcast about what foreigners find... Silly, ridiculous, unusual about America and Americans. I hope you enjoyed it. It's actually now September 25th. I started this on September 2nd. But again, more of that benchwork, dirty career type job swept in and took my time away. Uh, I wanted to thank Penelope Trunk, who posted a great review of my book, Rise Above School, on her website. I recommend you check out her blog at PenelopeTrunk.com and the fine review listed under self-published books that rock so that's it for this episode thanks and we'll talk to you soon bye bye
1: oh, don't it seem so far away
3: but oh, we traveling life today a man